Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Two things happened this past week that are not exactly related, but one kind of illuminates the other. The first is sort of a minor news story, but it's something worth looking at, something worth looking at to seek how it relates to the wider world, specifically in the area of sexual harassment, sexual assault, what it's like to be a survivor of those things, and how our wider society processes and talks about these kinds of crimes and accusations. So maybe you saw it. There was a young female reporter by the name of Alex Bozargine. She was reporting live in Savannah during a running race last weekend. There was a very festive atmosphere. People were waving, smiling, cheering at the camera. There were runners making faces and waving as they went by. Well, one runner came up right behind Alex and smacked her on her backside. She was shocked. It obviously hurt, and she took a moment to regain composure and collect herself, and then she continued on with her reporting job. Well, a viewer of the news show recorded the incident and posted the video onto Twitter, and as of this recording of all things, there have been almost 12 million views of that video. Bozargine replied to the video posted on Twitter with these words. This is her. To the man who smacked my butt on live TV this morning, you violated, objectified, and embarrassed me. No woman should ever have to put up with this at work or anywhere. Do better. Well, Twitter followers zoomed in on that video, found the race number of this runner, identified the man, and he was called out on social media right away to apologize to the reporter. He was interviewed the following day and said, it was a misjudgment. It was a mistake. I touched her backside, but I didn't know where. To say the least, it was not a satisfying apology. Turns out he's a married father of two daughters, a teen youth ministry leader, and a Boy Scout leader. So following his apology, Bozargine was interviewed on TV about what happened, and um, there was a massive response to the whole incident. It feels like this was maybe a small, isolated incident, but it really resonated across the whole country because as Bozargine said, and I agree, the emotion is extremely relatable for women all over the world. In the interview, Bozargine explained that her initial reaction was to just carry on. You freeze is what she said. Now people have responded with mostly an outpouring of support, but others have said things like this to her. It's your fault. You put yourself in the line of fire. It's not a big deal. You're flattering yourself. It was harmless fun. You're looking for fame or fortune. Just accept the apology and move on. When Bozargine was asked if she would accept his apology or if she would file charges, she said, and I quote, he took my power and I'm taking it back. He helped himself to a part of my body. I really think that sentence is especially poignant. He helped himself to a part of my body. Well, in other news this week, Christianity Today made their 2020 book awards this week, highlighting their picks for the books most likely to shape evangelical life, thought, and culture. In the CT Women Department, the award was made to Rachel Denhollander for her book, What is a Girl Worth? My story of breaking the silence and exposing the truth about Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics. I was actually a judge in this particular department, and I read Dan Hollander's book as well as several others. The book is lengthy and packed with difficult content, but I could not put it down. I read over 300 pages in just a couple days. Well, here is why this book is so important. Here is why I am thrilled Dan Hollander received this award, and she's received so many others. In 2018, she was one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. She's been recognized by Sports Illustrated, Glamour Magazine, as well as a number of Christian websites and books as well. Well, in the midst of the Me Too era, and really the church to era as well. When women are being emboldened like never before to give voice to the harassment and assault that they have endured because of their gender, Rachel Denhollander gives us a deep and instructive look inside the mind, emotions, and processes that an abuse victim endures.
endures. She just gives a powerful voice to survivors of sexual assault. She shows us what kind of harm is inflicted by abuse, how pervasive that harm is, and why survivors find it extremely difficult and often impossible to call out their perpetrators. So this is really where these two stories collide, Alex Bozargine and Rachel Denhollanders. That butt-smacking publicly endured by Alex is something that most women can sadly identify with. That kind of incident is unfortunately fairly normal in the spectrum of harassment. So if harassment and assault ranges from lewd comments and inappropriate office jokes all the way to violent rape, I think this butt smacking is something that most women can relate to or have experienced themselves. But these offenses are often hidden. They're often in the dark where others don't see them. It's often just the abuser and the victim or the survivor who know what happened. But this one being caught on camera and then Alex doing something that most survivors aren't able to do. She calls it out. She looks it in the eye. She names the violation that happened to her. She says, he took my power. I'm taking it back. He helped himself to a part of my body. And that's why it's a news story because women across the country are marveling. Oh, she named it. She didn't minimize it. She didn't pretend like it didn't happen. She gave voice to something that's sadly pretty normal. And that's really what Rachel Den Hollander does too. She gives voice to something that is horrific and is pervasive, but something that we are quick to minimize or sweep under the rug or excuse because we don't really know how to deal with it. Well, with so many Me Too stories coming at us and Church Too stories coming at us as a culture, we're finding them hard to process. You know, we, we want to be quick to say things like, well, is she lying? Is she making it up? Is she after money? Did she misunderstand? Is she blowing this out of proportion? But if you and I are going to walk with any credibility, any respect and love and compassion for other human beings through this era, then we've got to listen to survivors and we've got to do the hard work of understanding. Well, in case you don't know about Rachel's book, in case you haven't read it, in case you haven't seen it. Here's just a little quick brief synopsis of what is inside her book. She grew up participating in gymnastics. As a young preteen, she began to experience hip and back pain, and she was referred to Dr. Larry Nasser, a doctor at Michigan State Sports Medicine Clinic. He was a very well-known, very well-respected doctor. And even though Rachel was not really doing a high level of gymnastics, Nasser saw all levels. He was also the doctor for the highest level of girls at USAG Gymnastics, the, for the girls who were also Olympians. So Nasser was revered, well-liked, had the highest esteem in the field. So Rachel's mom took her to Nasser for the pain. They got an appointment, they got in, and he did a variety of treatments for her, including what Rachel thought or assumed was pelvic floor therapy. Well, during treatment, things did seem off to to Rachel. But during the treatment, her mom was in the room. But here we are with Nasser. His reputation is so huge that she assumed he knew what he was doing. She absolutely was uncomfortable, but she felt, you know what? I'm young. I'm naive. You know, who am I to question this doctor with so much fame and power and authority? How should I question his approach? So even though she felt like things were going wrong, she didn't say anything for quite a long time. This was a man to be trusted. And her mom was in the room, but Nasser did position himself between Rachel and her mother. So her mom did not see that this so-called pelvic work was being done on Rachel. Well, eventually the treatment became so troublesome to Rachel that her mom could tell something was wrong. You know, Rachel's mood started to change. She was getting increasingly discouraged, despaired, depressed. And Rachel's mom finally dragged it out of her. What is going on? What is wrong? And she told her what Nasser had been doing. The details and the memories in the book are lengthy, but suffice it to say right here on this website, 
Nasser did not wear any medical gloves. He used his hands to penetrate her, and he was clearly sexually aroused during treatment, which Rachel observed, but her mother couldn't see, again, because of how he positioned his body. There was no informed consent. There was no medical charting. The act was clearly sexual, and I'm going to leave the rest of the details out because I don't want to repeat them over the air, but when Rachel and her mom compared what Nasser was doing to her with certified pelvic floor therapists that they met, they were horrified to discover that what he was doing had nothing in common with the real treatment. In fact, he wasn't even trained in that kind of therapy. While you might know the story, in addition to harming Rachel Denhollander, he harmed well over 100 other girls. During the investigation, 37,000 images of child pornography were found on his computers after he erased as much as he could. During his trial, over 100 women came out against him. One victim's mom actually testified on her behalf because her doctor had her daughter, excuse me, had already committed suicide, succumbing to the despair and the shame inflicted on her by Nasser's treatment. The harm done to Rachel was significant for so many reasons. And this book is so important for so many reasons. This book really answers what I think are three very important questions for you and me and the rest of the church. How is sexual harm, sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual abuse, how is it harmful beyond the initial act of violence? Secondly, why do victims stay silent? And thirdly, what can we do to come alongside survivors? So in my 20 years of women's ministry, I have sat with, walked with, spoken with dozens of women who have been sexually harmed or abused. And I can say for sure, there is unspeakable and immeasurable pain inflicted on each of these women. It lasts for decades. It goes well beyond the initial act or the initial acts. There is a lifetime of harm done to the women. It's extremely long lasting. Women are typically hurt by somebody who's in a position of trust. So for example, with Rachel's case, this doctor is somebody who was respected, revered, and should be trusted. So after his abuse, then Rachel is viewing every relationship with suspicion. She's wondering if she can trust her teachers, her coworkers, her family, her friends, her pastors, judges, lawyers, police. There's just this huge weight asking who else isn't safe. This man's actions didn't match his title or his reputation. How can I recover from that? How can I believe other people are safe? These acts then affect every relationship in every setting from then on for the rest of the survivor's life. It's so hard then to trust other males, to be courageous enough to be alone, to not be afraid constantly of new abuse. There's always and forever an association with physical touch and trauma. It's hard for um, abuse survivors to go and get help and counseling because then they have to say what they have been repressing. Oftentimes survivors don't want to think about what happened. They stuff their memories. They press them down so they don't have to think about it. Though they lost control of their bodies, they don't want to lose control of their mind and control of their emotions. So they don't want to think about and process what has actually happened to them. So to get to the point of being willing to go to counseling is exceptionally difficult. Victims don't want to think about it. They often turn to drugs, alcohol, cutting, suicide, ways of just dealing with the despair and the darkness that is so deep. Getting to a place of telling others is very, very hard. So though they are the the victim and not the perpetrator, they are the survivor and not the abuser, they just experience great shame because of the ways that they have been harmed, the ways that they have been damaged. So the initial harm, the initial act goes well beyond, decades beyond what actually happened in the moment. Why do victims stay silent? Well, Rachel says in her book that there's three, usually three possible responses, fight, flight, or freeze. So you either fight your abuser, you flee your abuser, or you freeze. Freeze is actually the most prevalent response. 
there's this shock, this confusion, this fear. Did that really just happen? Did that person actually just do that to me? Is that really what happened? And we see that in Alex's video of this runner going by, just the shock. Did that just happen to me? And then there's this shame and blame because you didn't prevent it from happening. You feel like, well, this harm was done to me, but somehow I should have prevented it. Somehow I should have made sure that that did not happen to me. And then there's shame that it did happen. Abusers are so often people in power and the victims question themselves in the midst of their shock. You know, they think, sure, Surely he wouldn't have gotten this far. He wouldn't have this position as a doctor or whatever, as a family member, teacher, pastor. Surely he wouldn't be in this position if he was known for hurting other girls, right? People would know, right? So am I wrong about what happened to me? There's tremendous power in a coaching situation. Now, Nasser was not Rachel's coach, but for those of us with daughters who have coaches, we've got to ask ourselves this question, you know, how much do we trust these coaches? Coaches are, you know, required to handle our children. They touch them, they handle them to keep them safe. So there's this normalization of coaches touching our girls and parents tend to implicitly trust that and not question it. They don't question how the coach is treating their daughters. Abuse survivors are often seen as overly emotional. Uh, some Perhaps they've overly sexualized everything because they've endured abuse. Now they sexualize everything. Or they can't be trusted because they're too dramatic. They're too emotional. They're reading into it. They're the ones with the dirty mind. That's not what really happened to you. And so survivors feel shame. When a survivor wants to come out, they know it's going to be her word against his. He is known for his status, his reputation, his position, his credibility. She is known merely for what happened to her. It's a huge risk to get up the courage to say something and then to be disbelieved. You lose all of your privacy, all of your dignity talking about these really private, terrible things that happened to you telling others, um, even putting it out there publicly, and then risking people not believing you. You're going to share all your trauma and then just be told, well, you're after actually fame and money. To go through all of that and not know if your parents will believe you, if the police, the public, a lawyer, a judge, your family, or friends, if they're going to believe you is really, really scary. Not only that, but Rachel says in her book, out of 230 rapes reported, so that's the ones that are reported, not to mention the ones that aren't reported. Out of 230 that are reported, only nine are referred to a prosecutor and only five result in a conviction. So these numbers are terrible. So for, for victims or survivors to say, you know what, I'm going to face those numbers and, and conjure up the courage to do it. It's really scary. Not only that, but sometimes females silence females. We might say to one another, you know, don't say anything. You're going to go through so much trouble and no one's actually going to believe you. It's going to go badly for you. So there's this inevitable cycle of blaming yourself for being weak. You feel shame that it happened to you. And then you feel weak because you can't tell other people that other people that it happened to you or they don't believe you. And the cycle of shame just grows and grows and grows. Survivors are usually simply just too tired and too scared to go through with a lawsuit. And then sometimes when they do, abusers pursue non-disclosure agreements. They will pay the victim to stay silent. So this public proclamation of abuse just compounds the effect of the trauma. The abuse can be simply just so graphic and so embarrassing, so vulgar that the survivor does not want to talk about it. Well, what can we do in the church to come alongside survivors? I think in the Christian world, what we the danger we run is that we are so quick to say things to um, not want to sit in the pain, to not want to sit in the lament, and to say quickly to our brothers and sisters who have been hurt, you know, God is going to use this for your good. Somehow this is going to be turned around. Or, you know, you've got to forgive, not 
self-forgiving is really hurting you more than anything. It's important that you and I, when we sit with survivors, that we communicate a tremendous amount of compassion and patience and just listening, just hearing stories, being a safe place where people can talk about what they've endured and not being quick to write it off. Like, oh, it's going to get better. Oh, you're going to be fine. Or, oh, you need to forgive, but really just sitting in it. And you know, our culture, our sexually focused culture that's out there is also in here in the church. We are not immune to that. So we've got to make sure that we're not a part of making inappropriate comments, making inappropriate jokes, minimizing harassment, or saying things like, can't you just take a joke? Or can't you take it as a compliment? Or you're confused, or you, you don't know better. That's not actually what happened to you. As parents, it's essential that we believe our children. It's I think a temptation to distrust children because we can't imagine that that person who we've been trusting harmed our child. It's just too much to think that we have put our children in the hands of an abuser. And so we might say, oh no, that's not what happened to you. Oh no, I don't believe that that's what happened to you. Oh, you're making that up. Oh, did you see that in a movie? And now you're putting it on yourself. But parents, it is key that we believe our children. We might in fact need to bear some of the guilt or pain that our kids have gone through. It's important that we believe everything they say. So friends, those of us who are in the church, those of us who love survivors, let's listen. Let's sit with them. Let's believe. Let's give space. Let's do our best to bear burdens with them. Let's offer meals. Let's offer babysitting. Let's offer tangible things that will help those who are survivors process what they've gone through and um, process, go pursue healing. There's a, there's a lot we can do in terms of sitting with our friends and family who have been hurt. I so deeply respect both Alex Bozargine and Rachel Denhollander for voicing the injustices injustices that were committed against them in public ways. I really do admire their strength and their courage, and I'm especially in awe of God's work through Rachel Denhollander, and I cannot encourage you enough to read her book. I will have a link in my show notes. I believe her message is desperately needed because it's so enlightening and it's so helpful so that you and I can really understand what is behind Me Too, what is behind Church Too, how we can do better in meeting the needs of survivors and preventing abuse in moving forward. Friends, human life is precious. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let's exert ourselves with all of God's energy in us to elevate and protect those who are vulnerable. And if you are a survivor listening to this, know that Christ himself has endured the violence and the pain and the shame that you have endured. He has been there and he is reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. I want you to know that God sees you, God knows, and Jesus will heal you. But keep taking your journey one day at a time. Share your burden and pain with others. Give yourself a ton of grace. Give yourself a ton of time. Healing is a process. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Know that God is near. Get therapy, get counseling, get a good church, get the tools that you need so that you are able to pursue healing and wholeness in spite of this. Well, thanks for listening to this somewhat heavy episode of All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.